So if you think about same company, same product offering, same persona, same pricing, and the fact that the sales was relatively easy, you know, in the sense of like, you haven't been fighting for like two years to close one deal and you say, well, we did it, you know, that people, that it start feeling that, yeah, okay, this is, this, this is a process that lasted like a month, completely well and stuff. Then we knew that, you know, it was a repeatable sense. open and thrive in foreign markets. This is Steve here, your host speaking. And for this episode, we are reconnecting with one of my favorite geographies, the United States. When you think about it, the country is almost as big as Europe. And believe me, it's a tough nut to crack. The first few sales can be so hard to get. But what's even more complex is to achieve repeatability. And who better than Alex Luizzi, co-founder and CEO of Upflow, to explain to us how they have managed to achieve repeatable sales in the U.S. market. If you want to hear about how doing things that don't scale help them to find their target markets and their product market fit in the U.S., you will not want to miss this episode. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for coming here on the International Corner Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Uh, very nice to be uh, to be here with you, Tiff, and uh, looking forward to uh, to this episode. Yes, me too. I think it's going to be very interesting and and very uh, keen to understand uh, how you guys manage to get into the U.S. market and best practices. Uh, of, we're going to see how you manage to get to repeatable sales. But before digging into today's matter, let's start with an, an intro of yourself, of your company. If you could start with that, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Alex. I'm uh, 38 years old now, uh, starting to be uh, to be old. Um, and uh, you know, prior to starting uh, Upflow, the the company um, I, I co-founded uh, four years ago, um, I did studies in engineering and then in finance. Uh, I worked as a corporate banker for four years, and then in a small telco company I called uh, Yfirst. Uh, that I think you've already heard about because uh, yes. uh, Vince was a previous guest of your podcast, which was uh, which is great. I've, I worked a lot with Vince on the, the international expansion of uh, Wifer. So it was a good segue for us to, to connect on, on this podcast. Um, and after Wifer, I started uh, I started Outflow. Um, I had always been obsessed with uh, fintech applied to the B2B world. Um, the B2B environment and especially the traditional one is kind of dear to my heart because my, my family come from a, um, comes from a construction background. Um, and, um, and I've always been interested about like, how can we bring those, uh, new technologies to those, uh, to those areas. Um, and we initially started working on a project for financing for B2B companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty quickly we, we realized that something was uh, even more basic and pragmatic than financing companies, but just helping them get paid on time by the customers. Um, and that was the beginning of Upflow. Um, and the uh, you know, and we started um, we started Upflow with a very simple value proposition, which was we're going to create um, a cutting edge technology uh, company um, and software that is going to. Uh, 
at the beginning, we thought it would be helping those companies get paid, mm-hmm. but it was really like as we progressed, it really became something where um, we now have a clear vision on how we want to reinvent how those companies get paid. Um, B2B payments is just like the last thing that hasn't changed in the last decade in terms of payment. I'm sure you are aware of like, you yeah. know, like a lot of changes in the retail environment, in the consumer environment for, you know, with Square, with, um, you know, Lydia in Europe or, you know, Venmo in the US, other type of things. But in the B2B space, uh, people are still sending checks in the mailbox. Uh, people are still doing manual wire transfers one by one. Um and, and, and we help those companies get to the next stage and, and seize the, the opportunity that we have in front of us to, uh, you know, with, with better technology to help them uh, get paid faster. So, mm-hmm. so that's Upflow. Uh, we started four years ago and uh, we're now a team of uh, 50 people uh, nice. working for, uh, you know, hundreds of companies. Um, and as, you know, as, as we can probably tell by the name of this podcast, it's not only uh, in one country, um, we, we serve uh, companies globally, um, and we're very, uh, we're very happy to, uh, to be where we are now, helping those companies get paid faster. Very nice. Yeah, globalization is such a, an important topic, and that's also why this, this podcast was, uh, was, was creating. And uh, we'll, we'll deep dive into that in just a minute. Before that, I have uh, this concept in every episode that's called the icebreaker. So, Alex, just imagine you have a dice between your uh, hands, and then you have to choose you know, a number between one and six. Uh, just tell me which one it is, and then I will read you a question for you. <laughs> I'll pick number five. Number five. All right. What? Okay. So what did you want to do when you, when you were younger, like let's say your dream job and how did that impact or how did that relate to what you're doing today as a CEO? (laughs) (laughs) Funny. I wanted to be, um, I wanted to, um, to be a a pilot. Um, I'm not sure this is really what I'm doing right now. Um, but the one thing that, um, my father was, uh, by, you know, by, by training, uh, in the, in the, in the army, uh, and then worked in, uh, in the, the military industry for quite a long time. And, um, and I don't know, I've always been, uh, you know, kind of interested about this and I wanted to be a pilot. Um, I'm not sure if this is relating to what I do today, but one thing that might have an impact is the fact that, you know, that's what drove me to the, um, kind of engineering, um, in like, you know, studies. Uh-huh. Um, and it's interesting because you can feel that like, sometimes people are surprised that I'm an engineer uh, to get started, you know, when uh-huh. you do a company that is a FinTech and people always think that it's only business people doing this. Um, I also did the Master of Finance, but it came on top of it. And I still think that a lot of the things we do and how we approach how we build the companies are also like kind of coming from this engineering background in a lot of ways. So. You know, this might be a remote impact, but uh, I'm sure there's something around uh, this kind of, uh, you know, engineering and technical uh, background uh, that is still very much present today. Yeah, very, very much present. Yes. And also some might some people might say that because, I don't know, like you, you wanted to be like a pilot, you know, technically it's like you have a ship right now and you have to, you know, get it to the right destination as well. So that might also be related somehow, I guess. <laughs> So it's it's funny it's funny you say that Tiff because um, so I I'm, I'm not a pilot uh, and not at all but I'm a I'm a big fan of sailing and I'm a skipper mm. uh, and I always I kind of share this the, the parallel that I make between you know skipping a boat and uh, and running a company 
Um, and especially a sailing boat when, you know, like many people have different roles. And, and then there's also one thing that I always tell the team is the fact that like when you are on a sailing boat, you can't go in a straight line. You have to go to do something we call tax, you know, just going left and right. So port and starboard, port, starboard. And, you know, it's uh, the skipper is the one that has the map and says like, hey, this is where we're going. Uh, but if there's no map, you know, you just go left and right, uh -huh. left and right. And then one day when you wake up and you're still in the same spot, right? Um, and I, and I use that analogy to be honest, when, when we onboard people at a float, that's like one of the things that I say, uh, welcome on board. That's usually the, mm -hmm. the, you know, what people say, but it's, uh, there's, um, yeah, you know, looking backwards, maybe I should have dreamt of being a, a skipper and I became one. Um, um, <laughs> I didn't know if I would become a CEO, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm feeling really well and in, in, in my, in the spot where, where, where I am. Um, and that's probably coming from far that's away nice. as, uh, as a young guy. So, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, everything has an impact, especially your past. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks oh, a lot yes. for sharing Good that time. with us. <laughs> thanks a lot for sharing that with us, Alex. <laughs> Could you, if we get back, I would say to like today's matter and the idea is really to discuss how you guys managed to achieve repeatable sales in the US in, in particular, although as you mentioned, you are like uh, globally present today. Could you maybe tell us more about where you're at right now in terms of stage of expansion in the US market, if there's any I don't know, numbers maybe you can share so that we can better understand uh, what is the stage of internationalization today. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe before before I, I give you this uh, this answer in terms of like where we are, maybe I can tell you a little bit more about like how we went there in a sense of it was interesting because the problem we're solving is not an American problem or a French problem or an Italian problem, right? It's a global problem. Every single company in the world, B2B, um, has problems to get paid. And what was interesting is that when we started Oflow, I vividly remember that we, I was actually quite proud to say, well, this is going, this is going to be a French company in the first place because I'm originally from France, as you can probably tell by my accent. Um, and I saw no reason for us to go outside of France for a quite of a long time. You know, I had in mind the playbook of like, if you build a very successful company at some point, you go into different markets and then you might go to the US because that's like one of the largest market and probably one of the most prestigious one as well. But the truth is that the reason why we went to the US was very different. The reason why we went to the US was not because we cracked France and it was totally fine. And then we decided to go somewhere else. It was because we there was a technical reason for us to go to the US linked to our distribution, right? If you mm. think about our software, it's actually um, connecting to the financial software um, of companies we, we, we cater for. And the thing is that the French market is very fragmented in terms of financial tools. So anytime we would talk to a prospect, we would have to build another integration and quickly we realized that it wouldn't scale. And because of that, we started thinking like, what are the markets where we have the right ability to distribute at scale by building, for example, one integration, typically like, I guess some of you know what QuickBooks is. So QuickBooks is the default accounting system in the US. 90% of companies run on QuickBooks in the US. So if as Upflow, you have an integration with QuickBooks, then suddenly you can cater for the 90% of the market, right? And this yeah. is something you can't really find in France. And that was the reason why we decided to start distributing in the US, right? And it's important when to keep that in mind that? because um, when, we when realized that a year that? and a half after, yeah, it was a year and a half after we started uh, the company and something that I often 
uh, tell the team and, and other people that I share as a kind of a mistake. I think it took us too long to realize that. Um, okay. And we, we, you know, it's, we, we spent a lot of time trying to make it work uh, in a market where it would probably not work. Um, and it's what is interesting compared to, uh, you know, when I look at the, uh, you know, the topics that we, we're going to talk about today, it's that it's not only about sales, right? Sometimes you can sell your product, but then the problem is that maintaining it and achieving the right unit economics in the sense of like, yes, I sold it, but does that really make sense in terms of the price I get compared to the investment I need to make to make mm -hmm. this, this user happy? Uh, didn't really make any sense. And that's actually when we said, um, uh, when we said that, you know, we applied to Y Combinator. Um, and, and the reason why we applied to Y Combinator in the first place was this is because this is going to give us a foot into the US market. And then from there, we'll be able to distribute there. Um, so I'm happy to give you like other details on like how it happened in the US. But to answer your question initially, uh, the reason why the US is so important for us is is not only because we saw that as a market opportunity, but it was much more of a need and a mm -hmm. vital need for us, for the company uh, to be there. And, uh, and that's why we put so much effort in this. Um, today, um, we have nearly 50% of our revenues that are driven from the US. Um, okay. Even though we have a very, very small team in the US, which is only like a commercial team. So we have sales and customer success uh, based out of the US. Um, uh, the people? product and engineering... It's, it's 10 people at the moment, uh, okay, as of 23. Uh, this, this is 10, um, uh, spread between, uh, between sales and, uh, sales and customer success. Um, okay. and, um, and, 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 you know, and it's like, so it's one fifth of the company, but we still do 50% of our revenues from there for multiple reasons. One, this was like one of the fastest growing market in for us when we started entering. Um, and the second reason is that. Um, so in terms of new logo acquired, but the second reason was that the, the size of the deals that we were, that we're seeing in the U S is between two and 10 X larger than what we have in France. Um, so it's, um, a France and in Europe in general. So there's a, there's a dual effect of that, that got us to the point where, um, we, you know, the U S was quickly became like a, a very strong uh, revenue contributor for the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know have hundreds of customers over there. Okay. So basically you, um, the interest uh, behind the US is mainly because you guys realized that uh, there was a technical reason for you to actually go there because of distribution. QuickBook, exactly. which was an important component, about 90% of companies uh, have it there. So for you guys, that was a reason. Then when you realized that, you applied to Y Combinator, which... I guess accelerated also like the um, your uh, market entry there because you managed to get like a footprint in there. And as of today, I, I would say you gave like two main reasons why the US, you know, is like a market that's really important for you is because it has been so far the fastest growing market uh, in terms of new logo acquisition. And the second is because you have a higher deal size, which actually connects uh, well to what I was going to ask you afterwards to tell us a little bit more about what is your target market there your ideal customer profile so that we really get a better understanding of who your audience is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. QuickBooks was the starting point and then we quickly moved as well to other integrations. Uh, we don't okay. have a lot of them, but we, 
we have other integrations. And the reason why I'm making that point is that it's not only a technical thing, it's also like a market, like it's it's also a distribution and, and targeting type of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Typically, when we realized that most of our users on QuickBooks were the biggest users of QuickBooks and they most of them were actually moving to another software called NetSuite, which is an ERP that is usually for larger companies, um, we realized that we had a much better product market fit on those type of companies than mm-hmm. you know the smaller one on QuickBooks. And actually, the, the product market fit was achieved on uh, this NetSuite integration. Um, and again, I'm always telling it's not only because of the technical integration, it's also because of the type of company that are using NetSuite, right? We now have NetSuite and Sage Intact, and NetSuite and Sage Intact are the two financial software that most B2B tech companies in the mid market are using. Um, and this is exactly where we are focused, right? This mm. kind of mid market companies doing between five and a hundred million revenues is the sweet spot where we find a way to get to repeatable sales with the right unit economics. Um, and that made a significant difference. Honestly, like, you know, for us, this was like how we raised the series A was not only because, you know, like it was, okay, cool, a moment where you can raise money. It's also always telling people that you raise money because you you are now confident that you have a repeatable pattern in terms of sales and that you are confident that it also makes sense from a unit economics perspective and that you are ready to invest more in this and that's why you raise money, right? So mm-hmm. this is ex- when we found that, that sweet spot, uh, and it was like nearly after, you know, two years and a half after starting the company. And I thought this was way too long. Uh, but, you know, that's just a way of like, that. that's just the way it is. And I think that's the thing you do when you start a business. You need to be patient and uh, and keep on trying everything. But it took us 2.5 years to what we call nail our niche in the sense of like, we know that there is a significant market for us in front of us at Upflow. You know, B2B companies getting paid, like, you know, there's probably like a millions of companies that could do this. But focusing on this very narrow segment um, that is still, you know, much larger in the US than anywhere else in the world really helped us refining everything from product, business, sales, marketing. Everything was just focused on this specific segment. Um, and that made a significant difference in our uh, execution uh, in terms of sales and, and, and success. And, and for you, you mentioned uh, repeatable sales, repeatable pattern, right? Like to, to keep like selling. How did you get there? You said you found your niche market, etc. But how did you get there? Like, how did you manage to know, all right, like this is this, this is it. I found that the mid-market, B2B tech companies between five to a hundred million dollar yeah. revenue. That's it. How did you get there? Yeah. I'm... I'm going to share something that I shared with uh, one of our interns um, this week. It was interesting. He was telling me like, why didn't you um, outsource the the, uh, the, lead, the lead generation effort in the early days of Outflow, right? Because if you want to test a market, you could outsource this to, I know a company that can do this and that. And I'm always telling people, look, it's very important when you're trying to find that, you need to do it yourself, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many things, so many little details and stuff. And the answer to your question is that in, you, there's always like a way to post-rationalize this and say, yes, this is how we found out and stuff. But I'm always telling people at the end of the day, knowing that you're on the right path or on the wrong path comes from the bottom of your heart, you know, because you're talking to users, because you are selling your product, because you're seeing the pain when they're on board, because you see 
is where your product is good and not good and stuff. And, you know, I had this very, I had this very clear moment in the history of Upflow where I was like, all right, this is it. This is where we should be. And mm-hmm. the reason why this happened is because 10 times in a row, um, we closed a deal to the same type of company okay. with the same value proposition and the same pain that was solved, right? The other important thing was that it was to the same persona. So it was the same, you know, you could look at their profile on LinkedIn, the people that I was talking to and selling to were the exact same, right? Mm-hmm. They were controllers. And it's funny because, you know, you do this when you do this kind of a persona analysis. Uh, and again, this is something you do after once you hire these great marketing people that tell you how to do this, that I had no idea before. But, you know, they, they had this, the exact same background. They all came, for example, from consulting or audit services, then moved to a tech startup. Um, uh, it was all those kind of tech startups. And the last thing that was super important as well is that... Um, it was always the same kind of pricing, right? The pricing mm-hmm. was not all over the place, like mm-hmm. in the same way we used to, to do that in the, in the early days. So if you think about same company, same product offering, same persona, same pricing, and the fact that the sales was relatively easy, you know, in the sense of like, you haven't been fighting for like two years to close one deal and you say, well, we did it, you know, that people, that it start feeling that, yeah, okay, this is, this, this is a process that lasted like a month completed well and stuff then we knew that you know it was a repeatable sales now the mm. challenge was that moving this repeatable sales from my shoulders to the team that we would hire was another you know uh, another challenge um but that's when we thought that we had a what we call an early pmf um yeah. Confirming it was also super hard, but you know that was that was the early signs uh, and things that I would encourage everyone when you're going into a new market to try to find. Mm. All right, so that's uh, as you mentioned, that's your definition. Uh, I would say of uh, repeatable sales, right? Like same company, same person, same pricing that you go and that you manage to sell a few times in a row. Yes, yes, and remembering this aspect of the feeling of it, right? Does that sound right as a founder? Um, or as a sales leader, do you think that like it's a it seems like a natural sale, or is that a, a constant struggle? Um, is also super important. Mm-hmm. Got it. And as you mentioned, at first it was uh, I would say like a founder led sales kind of model. How did you find these companies? Did that come from your network? Did you get intros? Did you actually cold call yourself? How did that happen? Yeah. So yeah, it was definitely founder sale. Just uh, to give you um, an idea, when we entered the US market, so when we went to Y Combinator, um, back at that time, the team was a team of 10 or 13 people, right? And that's what, and because this was at the beginning of COVID and then this was the end of the world, uh, for like nearly a year, we stayed as a team of 13 people. So, you know, there was one other sales um, with me, but it was pretty much... Uh, me doing the sales, um, okay. um, like quite, quite, like you know, on a, on a on a regular basis, especially on this on this new market, um, and so you know the the, the way the, the the way you you kind of grow after that is um, is is not always um, is is not always easy, and you need to be very careful on like how you are going to 
push this to others, moving from what you were doing, um, what you were doing yourself, right? Because uh, companies are not always, you know, sometimes you get a feeling for like what is right or like a kind of an attention to detail. And then you, you are too quick to hire people and say, okay, we figured that out. So now uh, let's move to, let's move to hire like a bunch of people to do it. Um, and then, and then move it, move it from there. Right. So I think, you know, one of the things that was super, super important was just spending a lot of time, um, and tell me if that answers your question, but spending a lot of time with the first hires that you're going to make in sales is extremely important to see how they would, you know, how they would test the market, how they would they, would they go and stuff. Right. Because the way we approach the market to answer your question, uh, it was very much like you know, us doing outbound effort, right? The thing that is important is that we sell to finance people. And I can tell you that finance people are not spending their Sunday afternoon on a, on a website like that is comparing like new offering or reading mm. newsletters that are talking about this last new technology and signing up to your product to see if that's if that could be a, a fit, right? You need to call them, you need to convince them, you need to establish some trust. Um, and the one thing that is extremely important in our approach at Outflow that I think made a difference, especially in the US, was that from the get-go, okay. we started our approach with a value-driven proposal from the beginning of our approach, right? It was always around, okay. let, let us help you understand how much money you're losing or how much money you could save by using our software or using a solution like ours rather than just coming and saying, hey, look at this new product that does this and that and stuff, right? So typically, like, because we talk about, like, you know, how companies get paid, sometimes you just look at this and say, well, you can help those controllers, mm-hmm. you know, identifying, like, how much money this, they, they lose every month by not collecting their invoice on time, by not collecting invoices at all, because sometimes invoices are just written off because after six months, or a year, you know, you're just not going to recover them. And so the what the one thing we would do and that I would do manually in the early days and that we've now like refined quite a lot, but we would really build a case with them, right? We would work for them and say, let us help you analyze this for you so that you can show something to your boss to say, hey, look, this is we've run that analysis. Um, and you know, we came to the conclusion that we are losing like ten thousand dollars every month. And this is like the deck, mm-hmm. this is the presentation, this is stuff. This is what I would do like, you know, manually uh, in the early days of Outflow. Um, and, 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 how, and how did you approach them? Was it like, did you actually, I don't know, like pick up your phone? Uh, was it through emails, yes. you know? Emailed, emails and phone. Um, and mostly emails with something that, you know, we try to, you know, everyone, I'm sure you do. And I mean, on my side, I do receive probably like a hundred emails a day that are just uh, people trying to sell me things. So I have a good understanding of the type of emails that I'm not even opening. Um, the question has always been like, how do you stand out from those cold emails, right? If you Absolutely. have to go cold, right? If you, ha- if you have to reach out to people because they're probably not going to come to you, uh, especially when you are in a in our space uh, in a kind of a category creation play uh, where you know people are not switching from the competitors to to yourself uh, in our space like you know people are just using spreadsheets um, we don't have a lot of competition right 
So, mm-hmm. you know, people don't have our type of product top of mind. They're not looking for us. They're not searching for us, right? So we had to mm-hmm. go outbound. And by doing this, we needed to do outbound in a very, very um, differentiated and value-driven type of approach, right? So typically what I just explained was just like approaching someone by not selling them anything, but rather by giving them some value, Um was something that worked quite well for us uh, in the early days. And, you know, there's this saying of uh, way Combinator saying, do things that don't scale um, in a sense of like, you know, these are things that take a lot of time. And, you know, of course, like sometimes people will not answer, even though you spent like uh, half an hour building this uh, uh, manually and stuff. Um, but I can, you know, I can tell you that this is still something we do manually, like uh, even though we've we've helped like and, and, and leveraged like a lot of information we have, uh, but it's just still our approach. And I think that's what made us successful in selling in the US, uh, where people are very much air ride driven, um, even more than in Europe. And did you, um, I have a question on that. So, because I understand the do things that don't scare, right? But then also, usually you try to do things that don't scare, still on something quite targeted. So I'm guessing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that when you started to do this, maybe like manual email crafting, etc., that's a little bit more customized and, and they feel like it's targeting to them and you're providing value. At that moment, did you already know that you had the right target market to actually do that? Or were you still exploring different options? And why am I saying this? It's because if you don't know uh, at the start, what is your target market, then sometimes you might just be spinning the wheel for, for nothing, right? Just imagine you're, you're doing that much yeah. effort in crafting an email to, I don't know, retail companies, and then, you know, it's actually the wrong market. You know what I mean? So I'm yeah. trying to uh, understand I mean, when yeah, I know what you <laughs> into the picture. Exactly. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, that's probably, I think that's the story of uh, starting a company and just like uh, going around in circles, trying things, trying things that just don't work. Um, and I think the question is more around like to, to your example on like if you're sending that to the wrong company, right? What is going to happen, right? So first, maybe they're not answering or they answer. And then when you jump on a call with them, you realize that you're totally irrelevant, right? Or third position, like maybe they buy your product and then in the end you realize that it just doesn't work because it's a different use case and stuff. I think what is super important is that you know, that's that's why I am been so much of a fan since then of the, the YC advice of like, you know, shipping faster and iterating really quickly on like what you're doing, anything, whether this is your sales approach, your product, everything. It's just that, again, this is coming back to your feeling, right? Am I in the right spot? If I'm not in the right spot, let's move. Let's move. Let's try again. If I feel that I'm in the, in the right spot, let's do it again. And let's do it again quickly, right? So... You know, we would do this, We, you know, in the early days of Outflow, I still have, I was kidding with uh, Como, like our number one employee yesterday, mm. who's been with us for four years now. Um, I still remember sitting down with him, opening a newspaper about like French company in next to Tours, which is a, which is a city, the city where he was coming from and calling them one by one to try to sell them Outflow. I mean, I could tell you that like we had a feeling that this was not the right target market, right? People were just yelling at us and saying like, "Yeah, we're not interested. Uh, this is this is not our priority." This is, and this and that's fine, you know. Like, I don't regret doing it because we learned by doing this. What would have been a problem was spending six months or a year doing this, um, and we we did a little bit of that mistake as 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 I, as I told you. 
in the sense of like, I think we stayed for too long on the French market. Um, mm -hmm. But again, you know, you will never know if you don't try, right? And so um, you need to try, try again and, and move fast when that doesn't work and keep on pushing as soon as you see like the beginning of something that works. Um, uh -huh. That would be my approach to, to that, whatever you're doing. Would you say then, then when you started on the US market, you found quite quickly the the right target market? Did it happen like quite fast? Yes. Did you have, I would say, a like good intuition to start with or did you have to try several yes. you know, target markets before getting there? No, I think, you know, okay. It wasn't just it wasn't the beginning of the company, so we already had like a an understanding of like the general processes, the problem okay. we were trying to solve. We were quite deep with this. We, I think, we already had like mm -hmm. you know probably like seventy or a hundred uh, companies using Upflow at that time when we entered the U.S. market. But what was really mm -hmm. interesting when we entered the market and when we started talking to people is how they reacted to the value proposition we had, right? And this was much stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really related to, I think the, the American market is, from my perspective, much more mature in terms of the finance and business professionals, right, in general, right? And typically, like, if you think about this role that is called a controller um, in the US, the controller is really the person in the finance team that makes, makes sure that, You know everything is tied. You know is 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 really like aligned and working well, and that there's nothing like you know kind of like not working and stuff. And typically, cash collection is one of the big focus, right? Um, what was interesting is that these roles don't really exist in in France or in Europe. I mean, they're really new, right? So in France, we were talking mm -hmm. to a CFO or sometimes even the CEO, right? And, you know, they tell you like, yeah, like, you know, chasing unpaid invoices, that's important. But, you know, it's not my top priority, right? When we entered the U.S. market, when we started talking to those controllers, and that's why I was telling you that it was super important to find the same person again, they were telling you, I'll always remember Sne, the controller at Front, which is one of our power users now. Sne was telling me like, oh, yeah, I have an OKR around like, how can I improve my cash collection, you know? When, as a founder, you know, your product is around cash collection and she tells you mm. that, like, she has an OKR that is related to, like, the cash collection, you know, you know that you've knocked at the, wrong, at the right door, right? And so... Absolutely. That was... I had this, this kind of, like, moment, like, a couple of times and, and that really helped us, like, kind of pushing forward because we knew that it was the right, the right thing to do. Okay. Okay, great. And another question, like, what about geography? Did that have any impact at the beginning with your focus? Did you start, I don't know, by the East Coast or whatsoever? Like, like how does geography, because, you know, the, the US is like, I, I think even bigger than Europe. Huge. So, Yeah. Um, look, we, we started, I mean, the, the, we're lucky enough that like the product we sell is not really like a product for Again, like for France or the US or the East Coast or the West Coast, you know, it's a, it's not a local product. We sell software. Um, the way you chase unpaid invoices in San Francisco is pretty much the same as like what you would do in Boston. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that now like my, our VP of sales in New York would tell us like that there's a big difference between selling to West Coast people, to, you know, people in, you know, Austin and then the East Coast and they know all of this. But mm -hmm. back at that time, There was not really a there was not really a, a main difference, and also remember that like when we entered the U.S. market, so we entered the U.S. market at the worst moment, which is 
which was uh, 2020. So it was right at the beginning of mm. COVID. So we landed in January and then February was the beginning of COVID, right? Um, yeah. But the one thing that was important is that most of the, like, I mean, most, if not like all of our sales at Outflow in the US were done like, you know, remotely, right? We we sold, like we, we did all, we did those discovery calls, um, value-driven approach, closing, like onboardings, everything was done over Zoom, right? It was very, very rare at that time that you would go and, mm-hmm. and see someone. So being on the West Coast or the East Coast didn't really make made a difference at that time. I think the main reason why we decided that like our office would be, uh, our very, very small office would be in New York um, was the fact that, you know, because we still had a big chunk of the, the team in, in, in Europe, uh, the time difference mm-hmm. was really, really you know, not manageable with San Francisco and much better from on the East Coast. So um, that was the, the main reason why. But there wasn't a big difference uh, for us uh, selling into San Francisco or like on West Coast or East Coast or anywhere else. No. Uh, all right. Because what I had in mind was re- related to targeting, right? Because at the beginning, as you said, you guys were doing album. I mean, you actually were, were doing album. So I'm guessing there's only... So much time you can dedicate, right? And and so long, and s- there's only a limited amount of companies that you can target at the same time. Especially if you want to do something customized. That's why I was wondering, like, what was your thought process at the beginning? Did you did you just pick random companies uh, based on like few criteria? But then you it, it could be companies that were sitting no. in the east, west coast, etc. Or if you yeah. had like an approach, also you know by geography to see. If there was something there as well that could be impacting no it was we we had we we put a lot of thinking in terms of like who do we want to target but it was not really in terms of geographies it was more in terms of like what is the size of the company um is this a company that is fast growing what is the tech stack that they're using you know typically like we dedicated a lot of energy at the flow trying mm-hmm. to understand like what okay. is the financial software the company is running on for example right um, it's not obvious, right? If you look at a company from the outside, uh, there's some things you can tell. For example, uh, if you go on their website, you can mm-hmm. tell, uh, you know, uh, some of the things they're using for, you know, to do their website and stuff. But if you think, if you need to guess, like which uh, which uh, financial yeah. software they're using, it's not it's not that easy. So typically, like we we put a lot of effort in terms of analyzing, like for example, job description. Um, there's usually a lot of information in there. Uh, to understand which financial software they were using. And, you know, typically, like, we started building lists of, like, companies that are on NetSuite, right? Um, and then you try to enrich this with LinkedIn and seeing, like, is that the right mm-hmm. size? Trying to have an estimate of, like, the revenues. And all of the things are, like, it takes a lot of time. Not easy. Um, but, you know, it was more those type of criteria mm-hmm. than, you know, where they are in the U.S. Uh, that made sense for us. And then we engage with them, like, you know, by cold calling and cold emailing in the early days. Okay. And uh, when you say uh, making a list of like NetSuite's kind of company, was it only from the, like your knowledge gaining or did you, I don't know, use like third party whatsoever? Like, uh, uh, you know, like there's like so many companies that can sell you some some software list of uh, of like companies that use XYZ <laughs> vendors. Did, did, did you use that? Yeah. We tried, we tried to use that, but honestly, like this was all crap. Like I've never found one that was good. Uh, okay. And this is something that we, <laughs> in the end, we did, we did ourselves. Um, and you know, uh, again, like one of the, the thing we spent 
we, we have a we have a dedicated team now that is only working on that on the lead generation angle. Um, okay. How do we identify the right uh, the right companies? Um, uh -huh. And typically, like we spend a lot of time uh, enriching the the job offers or any type of communication where. Um, you know they uh, they they talk about this and maybe sometimes mm. we can identify that that that's that's a way to, to do this. Okay. Um, the big game change the big game changer for us over the last couple of uh, years now um, has been you know building a very strong partnership with Netsuite themselves, um, yeah. and we now are part of their ecosystem and we distribute alongside them. So that okay. that made the big big difference in how we approach the market. Uh, but yeah, in the early days, like, uh, you know, reading, uh, reading a job description saying uh, you need to be uh, proficient or experienced with NetSuite with is it, usually yeah. a, good a good indication that uh, they're using NetSuite, right? Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. that's how we did it in the early days. Okay, great. Okay, as you mentioned, do things that don't scale at the beginning. Okay, what I'm trying to understand now is that so you did this, the sales at the beginning with things that don't scale, quite manual, outbound-led. You made a few sales. When, like, what was the point where you decided that it was time for you to now hire a team and to pass this knowledge onto your team? Yeah, again, it's really like when you start feeling that there's a sense of repeatability and that the sales is not an impossible sales, um, that, you know, I, we kept on pushing, uh, you know, we, we, when you raised the series A, we were at break even, so we were basically covering our costs, um. And that was like, you know, we could have stayed there like for a long time, right? There was not, you know, there was not really an urgency to do more um, from a kind of like a financial perspective. Um, but we really felt that like if we wanted to get to, you know, the vision we have, which is to become like the, the household name for um, the, the, the cash collection for, for B2B and, um, you know, having our product being used by tens of thousands of companies, We were just like, well, we'll probably need to accelerate, right? But again, it's not because, you know, you raise money and then you try to figure out how to accelerate. It's really, it really starts with, I have the inner feeling that like we are ready to accelerate. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy after, um, mm -hmm. and it hasn't been easy at all, but it was, uh, that was the, uh, that, that, that was the, 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 the thinking. So, you know, really like I, I built some relationship with, uh, with investors like very early on. Um, and I always remember this moment where I was uh, like calling them and saying, yep, it's working. Look at those logos. They're all the same. There's tens of thousands of them in the US. Now let's, let's build a team so that we can, uh, go to the next stage together and, and start like scaling it, uh, scaling it up. Um, okay. and when you start doing this, you, You know, you, it's also like, it's not only about sharing what you know, but it's also learning from the people that you're going to hire, right? Because, you know, I'm, yes, you've, as a founder, you did the first sales. That's great. Um, but hopefully you hire people that are a little bit better than you at what you do. Uh, <laughs> because as a founder, you do a little bit of everything. And, you know, typically when I look at like what we've built over the last two years now with our VP of sales in New York, Um, it's, you know, it's been game changing in how we approach the market. So it was not only transferring what we know, but also like learning from, uh, more experienced leaders, um, that already walked the path that you're trying to walk. Okay. Amazing. So I'm just trying to sum up a little bit, the few minutes we spent together as 
for what was crucial for you to achieve reputable sales. Uh, you mentioned that prior to actually going to the US market, you had a little bit of understanding already of like what could be your ideal customer profile. So you went into the US knowing that probably the tech B2B space would be interesting for you. You got into mean markets uh, and using outbound because as you mentioned, when you enter a new market, you're nobody at the start. So you have to go and get there. And for you, what was super important was the way you targeted the right companies because you wanted to have, as you call this very, this approach where you provide value when you actually get into uh, um, conversations and not, you know, just like randomly receive the hundred messages we, we do every day uh, on email. So for you, the tech stack was absolutely crucial. As soon as you could manage to understand what are they using, are they using NetSuite, for instance, etc. Like this was very important to you to make sure that the time you spend on actually crafting that email or whatsoever, that, that message is actually well spent kind of after you, you always have to know uh, yes. are they interested or not, but yes. Uh, so the tech stack was important for you and the partnership you built with NetSuite was also game changer in the way uh, you managed to um, sell more, I would say. And at that time where you managed to have a few logos, all the same, because as you mentioned, it's like uh, same type of company, same same persona, same pricing. That's when you went to your investors and then asked for like money because then you felt that it was time for you to now hire a team and then get to the next stage. Yeah, that's when we felt we were ready. That's a, that's a good summary. And, you know, just okay. remember that like all of these things are coming, uh, you know, like it's not a, there's no magic recipe or there's no magic playbook where you can do like all of those steps and then it magically works. Um, it's a lot of errors. It's a lot of things we tried that totally mm -hmm. failed. Um, in the end, you can draw like the things that worked. Uh, but we, because of our optimism, like, you know, as founders, we tend to uh -huh. always try to not necessarily forget, but, you know, kind of like put less emphasis on like what didn't work. Um, but I, I think for other founders out there that are listening to us, uh, just keeping in mind that like, there's a lot of things that, uh, are, are going to be struggle and, and it shouldn't stop us. Right. We should just keep on pushing when, when, when that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And Because you mentioned that you tried a lot of things, actually, and, and probably some of the things, uh, some things like worked well and some others like not so much. What is something you cracked while you've been working on the U.S. market? You now do extremely well and maybe you can share with the, with the audience that, that might help them. Yeah, I think it was really like this idea, like if your product allows for that, um, if you if you are able to drive some value from Um, some tangible value from what you sell. I think for us, like introducing this, not only, you know, usually doing this like in QBRs when the customer success after six months is showing you, hey, this is how much you saved, etc. I think something that we did quite well and that worked really well in the US was really like having the entire business process. And when I say business, this is from the first point of outreach until, you know, even on our blog, like any article that we write about this and stuff, until you've been using the product for two years, mm -hmm. like really focusing on like the, the first, the pain that they have and the, the, the financial cost that this problem creates for their business and how we can not only help them understand this, which is already providing them value, but also, you know, pushing them into a journey where we say, hey, this is how much we're going to, achieve together right and 
And that worked really well because, you know, like it, it makes everything so much easier, especially when there's no budget for this, when, mm-hmm. you know, they don't know you and they just, and you say, well, look, this is what we're going to achieve together. This is how much we're going to save. Um, and, and that worked really well. And, and again, this is something that was interesting from a cultural perspective, but I found that like Americans were much more receptive to those messages than in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you go to a buyer in Europe and say, this is how much you're going to save. Um, usually there's a, they're a little bit suspicious or they just don't believe you uh, or they say like, this is not really a, the, yes, cool, but this is not really going to make me buy your software. Um, I think it was re- very different in the US. That was really like, a, sometimes even the opposite, like literally like focusing only on that value rather than, you know, the what your product does, how we're going to do this, et cetera. Like they kind of trust you, right? So I think that was something that made 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 a real difference in the in the in the US. And I also believe this was particularly important because you are creating a new market. It's not like there's like tons of competitors and then the Absolutely. case is uh, already made. So especially for you and, and for yeah. a similar type of, of companies that are entering like a new market, they have to evangelize people. It's super important to do that as you mentioned, I think. I, I, absolutely, and I think this is, some, this is something that I share a lot with um, with uh, you know early stage founders because I think when you start your company, you think that like it's going to be the same for everyone, um, and your strategy and how you think about your distribution is very different if you're replacing an existing software where people already have habits, where they probably have already have some frustration. If you decided to build a, a company or replacing something, it's usually because uh, this something is not. You know, perfect. Um, they're already paying. They already have a budget for that. It's very different from like when you coming and saying like, "Oh, we're going to replace a spreadsheet." For us, when we started, I always remember when we started the company, we said, "This is obvious. This is so great. Like we're replacing a spreadsheet. It's going to be super easy to make our point." We didn't realize that this was the exact opposite. Replacing yeah. a spreadsheet is extremely hard because you can do anything you'd like in a spreadsheet, <laughs> which is uh, is both like a you know, like a, a great thing and, and then terrible because, you know, your product will never do anything. Uh, software is like, will will have its own constraint. But the main problem you have is that a spreadsheet is like basically free, right? So, you know, now companies are paying like 10, 20, 50 grand a year for Upflow. Um, when they're using a, sp- a free spreadsheet before and you need to justify that cost, that new cost that they've never, that they didn't anticipate, then that's uh, that that's a that's a challenge. So yeah, that was an interesting cool. way of uh, of approaching it. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story for sure. And what you mentioned, I think it's <laughs> it's extremely important. And thanks a lot, Alex, for all the insights that you provided so far. If that's okay with you, let's move to that last section of every episode, which is the "Oops, my bad" time. Whoops, my bad. So for those who tune in the first time, it's a few minutes at the end for the guests to share. A mistake or a setback that has happened so far during the country opening mission. Alex, I know you have tons of things to share, but if you had like one story to tell, what would it be? Yeah, we've done so many mistakes that uh, I could I could do another <laughs> two hours on only like uh, oops, my bad. Um, no, look in terms of this uh, specific topic of like international expansion, um, I think the one of the big mistake we did. Um, it was to open an office in the US without being present myself or a co-founder like being present uh, full-time in this office. Um, 
we didn't really have a choice at that time because when we raised the Series A, it was still in the middle of COVID. We couldn't travel. Um, we were so the story just to, to to rewind a little bit was that we were in YC. Um, so January to supposed to be March 2020. Uh, when COVID hit um, and when borders were starting to close, we just flew back like in Europe because we didn't know where to go and stuff. And then, you know, we thought that we would come back to the US like, you know, a couple of weeks after. Uh, and in the end, we couldn't come back to the US for like a year and a half, right? Yeah. So we said, what do we do during that time? Well, during that time, we keep on sending in the US uh, on Zoom, pretending that we are in the US. But anyway, everyone is at home behind the Zoom. So whether I'm in France, in Italy or in the US, it doesn't make a, little, a lot of difference. Um, and so for like a year, we kept on selling in the US. And that's when, in the US from Europe, right? And that's when we started seeing these patterns of repeatability, mm. raise the Series A. And one of the big things with Series A was like, well, we're going to have a presence in the US because that's where most of our market is. And investors were like, yep, that's great. Let's do this. And then the mistake came in the sense of like, we said, well, now that we have the money to do this and we are confident that we can achieve this, let's open an office when we just couldn't travel, right? We couldn't travel, we couldn't be there. <laughs> um, yeah. And then we started having like, yeah, it seems funny now, but like in the, like, you know, for me three years ago, like or two years ago, I was like, well, why not? You know, let's give it a try. Anyway, everyone is remote. So, you know, it's, it's this new world. And I think, you know, I think we hired great professionals. Um, so it always starts with sales, right? Before even success, like it started with sales. We had great professionals, but the thing is just that we underestimate like how hard it is at this stage to actually mm -hmm. transfer the knowledge that you've accumulated over the last two, three years um, of like building company, even like evaluating people. Like, you know, when you hire and it's only like, over like a couple of interviews and then you have someone like starting it's it's really really hard and i think we lost nearly like a year in um you know not necessarily having the right people not doing the right things not mm -hmm. being connected enough between what is happening on the sales side of things and the product that's also the things that you don't even realize when you're selling as a founder is that the feedback loop that you have in terms of oh the prospect is saying this let's put this in the product etc cetera, etc cetera. As soon as you start hiring people, if the, yeah, you don't have a strong PMF, you lose you lose that connection, right? And one way to do this is actually to sit next to the person who is doing a demo, who is struggling to close a deal, who is like you know doing all of the things, right? Um, you know, and then as soon as we could, like I made a decision to relocate to the to the US, and that's when like it made a whole difference. And okay. you know, we always kind of I spent a lot of time with other entrepreneurs who especially French one that went from, uh, you know, that opened like the, the office in the, in the US. And, you know, it was funny because most of them did the same mistake thinking that like, you know, they can stay from where they are and have like, uh, you know, hire great people in the US. And they say, well, we all came. And that's what made the difference and made the companies uh, uh, successful in the end in the US. So, um, so I think this was the, the biggest we get. Yes, founders presence. Yes, I mean, definitely those like the stories around opening offices, etc. like this is like kind of tricky. And especially during COVID, you guys uh, had, you know, like quite, <laughs> quite an even full, I would say, um, um, a few uh, months <laughs> to get there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it's good memories. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's now part of the of the story anyways. Right. So you wouldn't change it for anything. <laughs> 
yeah and you can't actually <laughs> i have no regrets you, but you just can't change it yeah you can you can change it anyways well anyways thanks a lot alex for everything today it was very insightful i hope the audience enjoyed but uh at least i did and uh, i'm sure that uh, there's a few takeaways that could allow some uh, of our audiences to also uh open the u.s market or even use those you know in in other markets so thank you so much and i guess just have to tell you until next time now Thank you so much, Steve. And if um, anyone has any question or wants to reflect that, just please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're always happy to share and help uh, with other founders that are in similar situations. So uh, thanks for having me, Tiff. Hope it was helpful. And uh, yes. talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to not miss the next one. And please share it with two people in your network. This is how this podcast gets more visibility and can help more of us to work on international markets. See you soon.